This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to another interview for Matifile, where this week I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Bara Shiban. Mr. Bara Shiban is a Yemeni activist and is incredibly active on social media in advocating for Yemen and human rights in the Yemeni state today. The conversation covers the peace-building process of Yemen, what the major roadblocks are, and the role of the international community in helping broker peace in the region. It talks a bit about what life under the Houthi regime looks like and why it's incredibly problematic and incredibly difficult to get all parties on the table for a smooth, peaceful transition process. It was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed interviewing Mr. Shiban. Here's the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matifile, where we are honored to have with us Mr. Bara Shiban. Mr. Shiban is a Middle East and North Africa caseworker at Reprieve and has been a consultant of the Yemen Embassy in London itself. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Shiban. Thank you so much. Uh, such an honor to be with you. And I want to start this interview going back to the roots of the present day conflict, which is past the Saleh government's demise, and in about 2013 and 2014, when you had the Yemen National Dialogue, of which you were, of course, the youth representative. What was the dialogue intending to achieve in 2013 and 2014? And did it succeed in achieving that? What happened there? Um, I think touching on the National Dialogue is really one of the times that Yemen was trying really to touch on kind of the core issues um, that it has been struggling with in terms of what is the type of governance it wants to be, uh, what is the the conflict it has to discuss openly, uh, what is the mechanism and transitional justice um, form it has to go through in order to move towards the the future. The main problem in, 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 in Yemen that every conflict will drive you a couple of years, if not decades, uh, if not decades back. Um, But to look into this specific conflict, the one that we are currently living, you at least need to go back to 2011. Like, even 2011, like if you, if you're not really doing a, like, you know, an academic search, or you're not trying to go into the full detail, but at least you need to understand the situation 
since what was known back then as the Arab Spring, uh, the Arab Spring protests. And the Arab Spring protest had a lot of dynamics in it, but within it there was hidden, let's say, hidden conflict um, that the Saleh era was able to, to basically pressure, put it under the, uh, uh, under the carpet. So when the, um, the protests happened in the, in the square, the main demand was a very specific demand directed towards Saleh and his family. So there was a clear demand by a huge segment of the public that they need him to step down and his family members. Um, and it was in the light of Saleh trying to pass a, uh, an amendment to the constitution that would allow him to run indefinitely. And that was kind of the sparking, uh, let's say, incident that led to a series of incidents that, uh, that followed. Now, after the uh, 2011, there was kind of, I wouldn't say a very like smooth transition, but kind of Yemen looked like it was heading towards the, uh, the right direction. So in terms of we had for the first time, finally, a, a national dialogue. And when I mean a national dialogue, a representation of all segments of society and coming from all provinces of Yemen that were largely excluded from the process for a very, very long time. So one of the main problems that Yemen suffered is that post the unification in 1990, power became very, very centralized. And now a centralized government is not just by itself a problem. The problem is that when a centralized government becomes, you know, overruled by a patronage network, just benefiting a very, very small circle of people. And the demands from other regions of the country started to rise up, saying we feel excluded, we feel we're not part of the government, our voices are not heard, there is no inclusion in the decision-making uh, making process. Uh, what made things worse is Yemen economy has suffered for many, for many years. Now, it was looking okay uh, in the era of the 80s, and especially after oil was discovered in the province of Marib in, in, in North Yemen, and the discoveries of oil in the south of Yemen should have made it even better. But following the decision by Saleh in 1990 to back uh, or to support Saddam when the invasion of Kuwait happened, the Gulf countries retaliated by expelling a large number of people, close to a 1 million people of Yemenis, who would, who would usually send revenues and, and remittances back to the country. And that led to a collapse of the, of the economy that it couldn't survive until today. Like you can imagine from 1990, we're living the consequences of what happened, of what happened back then. So when uh, the oil explorations happened in the mid-90s, yes, there was an increase of the, like people would see that the, for example, the budget of the government is increasing, but the country as a nation is not feeling that it's, it's actually, there is development, that the things are moving, moving smoother. And what made things even more difficult is that when Saleh started to put his sons, his nephews into key military positions, and thus the conflict started kind of like a small conflict started with the Houthis, um, which started just as they were a small religious group in the north of the country, like up, up north of the, of the country. And people didn't see it as a big problem back then because Saleh was able to maneuver his ways through, you know, those small, small conflicts that have always um, erupted through his time. Now, what happened is the problem is after 2000 and, uh, 2011, because the transition deal was signed 
um, and it was sponsored. Yes, it was sponsored by the the Gulf countries in general, specifically Saudi Arabia, but it was heavily backed by the international community. The Security Council issued a number of uh, resolutions backing uh, the deal and encouraging Yemen to have a vote for a new referendum and a new uh, and a new constitution. This is where we came in. So we came in to put a framework for the uh, new constitution. So basically, the period after 2011, Saleh started to work with the Houthis, although being an enemies of the, of the past. But effectively, um, the state looked weaker uh, than, than ever before. So you have basically part of the state is working against the, the transition. So through the period of 2012 and 2013, the Houthis were advancing militarily, and that was basically effectively a coup because the government is losing, is, you know, is losing its capture of parts of the country, and it's losing control of parts of the country to effectively rise of a new uh, military wing. And the new military wing is a kind of a mixture between the, the, the Houthis, which is a religious group, but also members of the form of kind of the military who also represent kind of the northern elite of the, um, of the country, kind of the associates of, uh, of Saleh. Um, I still believe until today that Saleh didn't thought that it would go this far, that I think he knew at the time that he could reverse the engine and quickly convince, especially the regional powers, that he can come back to power quickly and, you know, reinstall law and order back in the country. But as, as everything, things can go under, like out of, of control. And the breaking point was in September 2014, because what happened is you have a militant group um, that is no longer associated with the process, the government, the, the basic even forms of governance. Um, they, they don't really even subscribe to being a political party. And they have been felt like they have been, you know, you, you, you have a group that has been growing up in terms of number, recruitment, and being, ex- being, being excluded for a couple of years while they're building themselves militarily. So, and I think this is kind of the main flaws of what people don't see is that when a part of the country is excluded for a number of time, for a period of time, if you have children, and, and I remember I went to Saada myself in 2007 and 2008, and it was during the fourth war of Saada between Saleh and the, uh, Saleh and the Houthis. And I remember very well back then that I met children. There were children at an age of 12 to 13 carrying weapons, and they were kind of fighting under the Houthi, uh, the Houthi banner. Now, if that child, if I move forward until 2017, that child would have been now 23. All what he witnessed in his life is war. Now, imagine a group of people who have been meeting, recruiting, and campaigning for all that period, and all what they think is that they're going to this war is, is coming. So the kind of the excluding Sada from whatever was happening in the, in the rest of the country did contribute into the exacerbating of this current, the current conflict. So when they took control of, over, over Sana'a, it meant that the deal that was negotiated and agreed even within the national dialogue might no longer be necessary because the deal at its core 
was agreed that Yemen would move from a centralized form of governance to a federal system and that we would have a transitional justice process that we were going to address the grievances of the south of Yemen, but also the grievances of the Saad issue, which is the Houthi, uh, kind of the Houthis um, problems that they have been facing with the central government uh, since, uh, 2000 and, uh, since 2004. But when you have the same militant group are effectively in control over the capital, they might no longer like need a federal system because they are effectively running the uh, running the uh, running the show, and things kind of quickly deteriorated from there very very quickly. So we f- quickly saw provinces um, descending into conflict. Houthi is able to go in and install their kind of a parallel. Uh, security structure that is running, um, you know, in in parallel to the uh, formal security structure, and this resulted basically into the collapse of the of the process and leading to first of all February and March 2015 when the Houthis uh, launched their offensive on the uh, on the southern uh, on the southern provinces, and I think no one expected that the that the Saudis would. Uh, intervene. I mean, yes, they said that that they would uh, that they would intervene, but given the, the the history, no one thought that they would actually mili- militarily um, militarily uh, intervene. And and so that what happened. Uh, 2015 March 2015 came in. The Saudis fought uh, Saleh for the first time, although it had been a long Saudi and, and a Gulf ally. Um, for the first time, had been in a camp where he's fighting. He's fighting the, uh, the Saudis until 2017, when people started, especially in the northern provinces who live under Houthi rule, started to feel exhausted and think that Saleh might have some, you know, final trick under his sleeve that he can pull up at the, <laughs> at the last, uh, at the last uh, moment. And that's when he announced a divorce from the, from the Houthis in late uh, 2017. And I think the surprising thing that the Houthis were very organized, that Saleh really looked like he didn't have anything. Um, they have managed to uh, overrun the military, the security, the intelligence, and um, effectively stripping him of all the elements to pull back at, uh, at any moment. So I think that's another, like another period of which is the killing of Saleh in, two, in late 2017 by the Houthis. Um, and then an, 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 a cycle of uh, a cycle of violence that we were still we're still living until today. Um, I think that that sets up the stage for today incredibly thoroughly. <laughs> so today, if I'm not wrong, that is, you have Sanaa controlled by the Houthis and a large part of northern Yemen controlled by the Houthi rebels. You have Aden and the south controlled by the Saudi-backed Hadi regime and the internationally recognized Hadi regime. And then you have the southern separatist movement that is also gaining ground in the south for a separate state, which they had before the unification of 1990. What is it like for civilians living under the rules of each of these three? Because you touched on this when you talked about child soldiers. So if I'm a civilian living in Sana'a or in Aden or in Sada, what is it? What is life like for me? Is it functionally different? Am I getting different access to food and water or is it equally bad all across? I think we're not, uh, so it's, um, the people think is like where it's good, where it's bad. I think the reality is where is it bad and where is it worse? <laughs> the current situation only in parts of the country. So if you go to 
Hadramaut, maybe in the eastern eastern provinces. Uh, if you go to Marib, if you go to Mahara, if you go to Sh like there, there are some provinces that look relatively stable and like are are trying to cope with the current uh, current challenges. The general climate is there is a there's a form of a militia rule across the country, um, no matter where uh, where you go. And Aden and Sanaa are significant because those are the biggest cities of the country. And so if when Hadi moved out of Sana'a, he announced Aden to be the interim capital. And if you go to the to to, to an unfortunate city like Taiz in the central in the center part of Yemen, um, you have a huge number. It's the biggest city in terms of population, um, but they're trapped. It's an active uh, war zone, basically. And it signifies how things are not moving in any, uh, in, uh, in any di uh, direction. The Houthis from one side have, are surrounding almost all entrances into, into the city. And you have people in there suffering from dire access to food, water, medicine. Um, and then the food that comes into the city basically is more expensive because, you know, if, if you are a merchant, you're adding the price of the transportation and all of the difficulties you, you, you've gone through to, to get the food, uh, food into. And in the uh, south, instead of being at an interim capital where, where things should relatively be, uh, be stable, what we saw is a rise of a separatist movement that is directly funded by the United Arab Emirates but also are not subscribed, like are not associating themselves with the, with the Yemeni government. So from one side, they say, we are joint in this coalition against the Houthis, but at the same time, we're not in the same camp with the internationally recognized uh, government. And um, it's a similar situation like in Sana'a or in, in Aden, you have literally a militia rule, a lack of law and order, some government institutions um, are trying to function, uh, trying to operate. So you have e even like some courts trying to to to, to keep up their uh, their uh, their daily work. In in Sana, the main difficulty is that they haven't been receiving salaries for the last two and a half years now. Um, so you can imagine hospitals, teachers, nurses. Um, Every function of, of what people in, in, in any part of the world would you know, take for granted is not functioning because the, the people haven't been paid the, the, the salaries. And there are a few people who are trying to keep up, uh, keep up work despite the, uh, the challenges and the situation they're, uh, they're living in. But, uh, but of, of course, then it affects the, uh, the population as a, as a, as a whole. Um, in the south of Yemen, the slight difference is that the public sector have been paid. So at least the internationally recognized governments are paying their, their salaries. So things are a little bit moving. But in general, there is a clear lack uh, of a functioning uh, state, even to the basic, basic, uh, uh, basic level. And a civilian is basically, you know, you're, you're trapped between those, those options.
And uh, how easy is it to get humanitarian aid into these different areas? Is it easier to access Aden than it is to access Sana'a? Or are they equally easy to access for international bodies trying to provide aid? So it depends on uh, how and where do you want, to, you want to distribute it. Now, if you want to just go to Sana'a, then yes, you can access it. Like most of the international agencies um, do um, manage to get their aid uh, to Sana'a. Now, the problem is the majority of Yemenis don't live in the main cities. 70% of the population, even before the conflict, lived in rural areas. And that's where the difficulty lies. Um, so how are you get, going to get aid to people who are living far away from the main cities? And there are some cities that um, there are no aid agencies at all. And I gave you the example of Taiz in central Yemen. It's the most affected by the conflict, but there is not even a single uh, humanitarian agency uh, operating there. Some of them do work through local NGOs, but um, it's very, very uh, limited what they um, uh, what they do. You can get aid to uh, trade in faster because the the uh, the port is still functioning and you can you can manage things. The problem is that once you try to cross it to the Houthis, the Houthis try to exercise themselves as a as a state. So they want to have um, customs. They want to have taxes. And if you've been taxed in Adam, they require for you to be taxed again or go through their own, you know, their own customs. Um, and, and that basically makes it harder for either, you know, a normal businessman who's trying just to get food to, to, uh, to into the country, but also for humanitarian agencies who have always been, uh, been complaining. And I think the latest was the World Food Program who um, have been threatening to, um, to you know, uh, stop all of their operations in Yemen. That makes sense. And that is quite telling, actually. But uh, what about, and you've been incredibly critical of them in the past, but what of drone strikes and uh, airstrikes that have been happening across Yemen who are conducting them? Where are they being conducted? And why are they particularly bad as a form of military intervention? If I'm trying to be, if I'm trying to be nuanced in terms of how, how, um, how, how to approach this is, um, first of all, you have the drone strikes. The drone strike is a, is a, could say, is a separate covert operation that is run by the United States um, that is, there is run, you know, with or without the this uh, this conflict, without the Saudi-led coalition, or or with them. So, um, the problem I think with how drone strikes have been contributing to the to to worsening the uh, the situation is after two thousand and eleven, the U.S. became so you know fixated on 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 this idea that its main objective in Yemen is to fight Al Qaeda while the whole country was moving through a huge transition. When you go to, when you used to go to, you know, to the people in Sana'a, in Taiz, in Adan, and across the country, people are really talking about the future. And that's a very important, and it signifies hope for the entire nation because they're thinking, what are we going to do? What are the, um, what is the coming elections going to look like? How are we going to move the country, uh, uh, the country forward? While, I remember because I went to, I, I was in the United States in, 2000 and, uh, in 2013 and I met some, uh, some congressmen. Everything that was discussed regarding Yemen in D.C. 
was about Al-Qaeda, as if like nothing else mattered. And it was so significant that when you people were talking like, you re- I used to tell like you realize people are moving through the, this is the most important transition in the country's history. Yet all of your resources is being, you know, is being put into this small, small group in, uh, in the country. And, and this, I think, affected how they looked into the situation because after the things, the signs of a collapse was starting to happen, the international community could have quickly came in to help quickly to push it back and put it back on track so the collapse doesn't happen totally as we saw in 2000 and, uh, 2015. Um, but that wasn't what was discussed, um, at, especially at, at the international community. The main issue was how are we going to keep the drone strikes or the operations uh, active, uh, uh, active against Al-Qaeda. Um, and I think this, the international community didn't think what was going to happen to Yemen, but what was going to happen to, Al- to, uh, to Al-Qaeda. And what happens is that effectively you have a country that is in conflict and you have an operation or a covert war with Al-Qaeda that doesn't seem it's ending anytime, um, uh, anytime soon. Now, Moving to the Saudi, uh, Saudi-led coalition, the form of their intervention since they came in in 2015 was an air power. They came with a huge air power that did significantly slow down the Houthis from being able to take the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the, uh, of the country. But the, in any operation, even when the international coalition you know, against ISIS launched its campaign, in Syria and, and Iraq, they only ended it when they had active troops on the uh, on the uh, on the ground. And you need to a little bit think on a long-term sustainable uh, sustainable solution. And I think this is what was lacking since the beginning. So people thought that at the beginning it was just the confusion. You know, the coalition just didn't um, was so determined to just pushing back uh, back the Houthis. But the people really were looking for is, can they actually help the form of governance to, to be reinstated within the country so people can at least slowly go back to their, to their normal lives? And uh, this is, I think, the main, this has been the main flaw uh, since, since the beginning of this, of this conflict. Now, I wouldn't say that the, um, the, of course, the other problem with, the, with, with using air power is um, air power is just the type of ammunition is big. So the number of civilian casualties is going to be huge. And if you don't determine that within a specific time frame and you have a clear plan on what you're going to do uh, next, people in the country then starts to ask question. Was that even, you know, was that even necessary from the uh, from uh, from the beginning? Even if it looked like at the beginning you're gaining some grounds, you're pushing the Houthis back into into some into the provinces where they originally came from, and and so on. Um, but what is what is lacking at the time is people is seeing a, a rise in tendency of militants being spread across across the country. Uh, you have an active partner within the coalition, the Saudi-led coalition, funding a separatist group, a militia group, which is basically, you know, running militias in several provinces. So it doesn't, it doesn't look like the whole, whatever the coalition is trying to achieve, 
is going to be achieved and it's moving into the best interest of uh, Yemen as a nation and as a, as a country. And more importantly, it doesn't, the main purpose is that you announced your whole operation based on the fact that there is a militia that took control over the capital. What does it look like when you're actually, you know, you're, you're flooding the country with more militias? Yeah, um, the militia problem is actually huge. People are also saying that there is internal factionalization between within the Houthi rebels as well. And now there is increasing infighting within several northern tribes in Yemen and with the, uh, the Al-Qaeda as well to some degree. What does this mean for the peace process in Yemen, especially because the Riyadh agreement was going on and Riyadh peace talks were going on in 2019. They were restarted. And I think the southern separatists just backed out of them last month. What does this mean mm. for the process of peace in Yemen? And is it likely to be achieved anytime soon? Well, the problem with, with, uh, with the peace process, when since it's um, all of the rounds of negotiations have happened, that we will see... So you see, for example, someone like the UN envoy will try to advocate that he achieved a huge success or he made a breakthrough in the negotiations. And what he really means is that he actually had a couple of meetings. He successfully met with X person and, and Y person. So nothing being implemented actively on the, on the ground. So the, first of all, I'll, I'll answer your question about the Riyadh, the Riyadh agreement. Like any, any other agreement, and kind of the main problem with a comprehensive political agreement in Yemen, is the problem lies within not just the details, but what is the military and security arrangements for this conflict to end. And this is something that the international community is not willing to invest nor time, effort, or resources to effectively put into place so a conflict could start at least, you know, at least the flames of, of violence starts to cool down and, and the country slowly can, you know, put itself together. Now, with the separatist agreement, it's a, it's a similar problem. The, the main issue of the Riyadh agreement is that it said, let's form a new coalition government between the existing government and the, uh, the Southern Transitional uh, Council, which is the, the Southern uh, separatist movement. And the military wings, they have to be merged together. So they made a series of steps of this will move to this part, this will move to this part. So you need to effectively diffuse them and then mix them together and then put them back. <laughs> that's something that, and, and it's a similar problem with the Houthis. They see that as the winning card. This is the card that actually put me on the negotiation table. This is the, the, my military power is a thing that has, is actually making people to talk to me. When they see if they lose that, then they kind of lose, you know, their value as a, as a, uh, as a group. And the current separatist movement, so the Southern Transitional Council came into, into place in 2017, but all of the Southern movement groups, so there have been a couple of movements, like they, they gain momentum at certain times, but then they cool down. And then they gain momentum and then, and then, and then they cool down. Um, but none of them had a, a, a military wing. Now, adding to the problem, and I think this is one of the problems that Saudis are, 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 are struggling with at the moment, along with the international community, is they're not willing to address, I'd say, the elephant 
movements in the room, which is the reason why also the Sahel movement will continue pulling out of the agreement is you have a partner, which is the UAE, constantly funding them and arming them. So unless you're willing to openly have a frank discussion with your, your partner about what's, what's, uh, what's happening, the conflict will not end. It's, it's that simple. Um, if I compare that to what happened with the Houthis, so when the Hudaydah agreement, the Stockholm agreement came into place, they agreed on the general framework. But of course, to have an enforcing mechanism is the challenge. That's where you actually need to enforce. So because the international community, unless they're willing to send on like peace mission that is actively going to see a demilitarization of the city of Hudaydah, nothing is going to move because you're just assuming that a process will move because of the goodwill of the both <laughs> of both sides and that's not how peace can be uh, can, uh, can be implemented and the other thing is that you have countries i would say like the united kingdom who is actively engaged in the in the discussion it's trying to steer uh, the um the the seat and, because it's it's the pen holder in terms of yemen at the security council but it's not willing to act to actually invest in it in a way that we, uh, we say this is how it's going to be implemented. And it looks like they just they want to support Martin Griffiths as an envoy because just he's British, rather than actually seeing why did it fail? Why did Stockholm? Let's have an honest So why did it fail, and how can we surpass that or not allow for that to happen in the uh, in the in the future? What would an ideal military or security arrangement for a peaceful transition out of conflict look like for Yemen? Will it look like international troops or will it look like a coalition of current troops that are already present on ground controlled by different parties? The issue is it's, um, it's not really clear. Like no one can, like it's not a definitive answer. Like this is what it, it will look like. The way, the way it's going, it's going into a scenario where one side is going to exhaust the other side. One way, uh, one way or, or another. Now, that doesn't mean it's gonna it's going to achieve peace in the uh, in the long run. But it may, in a couple of years, look like it will things will cool down a little bit. An ideal peace process, yes. You need to have to oversee a process where you don't have militias on the ground. That's like that should be like your main objective. Say. You have a problem on the ground. You have a problem in Sana'a, in Aden, in Taiz, in, in the different cities. The main problem is that we have militias that are at, uh, and a lack of law and order. And in order to avoid that, you need to defuse that. So you can revive parts of the security and the military that existed prior to 2014 but the reality is the current structure is totally different it's something it's something uh, it's something new so unless you oversee an active withdrawal of pe- what people see as militants running the uh, running the streets and being diffused to a form of a military that is you know that answers to answers to a government and can you can actually hold it to account and have some form of accountability the solution will just be hard to um, will be hard to to implement because what you will see effectively is just different zones and every, each zone is controlled by one party or the or or the other 
and just waiting for when the coming clash will uh, will will happen. It's not a sustainable uh, it's not a sustainable solution. Okay, and I I wanted to briefly touch on human rights abuses in Yemen. What do these human rights abuses look like? Because the Houthis have been torturing prisoners. They've been clamping down on journalists that have critiqued them and clamping down on any form of opposition that speaks out against Houthi legitimacy. Why is the clampdown this violent and what can be done about it? The Houthis, since they came into Sana'a, so until, I would say until, even until 2015, um, the general atmosphere within politicians, within civil society in Yemen was we need to open up to the Houthis. We need to include them. We need to attract them into the peace process. We need to convince them that actually having a civil state is a is a it's good for everyone, uh, including <laughs> including um, including them. The problem, I think, what with what happened is the Houthis have two main wings within it. You have a political wing and you have the military wing. Now, the political wing are the people who they've sent to talk. They sent to the UN. They talk to the uh, um, diplomats, and they're the ones who used to negotiate with us uh, all the uh, all the time. So all things were looking nice, pink and rosy. Now the decision-making power is within the military wing, and the military wing is some of them, some of the even the 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 individuals who run the the military wing go by aliases that people don't actually know their their you know real names. Uh, so. They actively have been working into creating this parallel structure that would work alongside the uh, the state. So it looks like a state within a within uh, within a state, but more powerful, and um, people would be, um, you know, let's say, if you're if you're if you're in Sanaa, you'd like you'd rather be very very careful into what what you say, who you talk to. Uh, creating like a police state in 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 the in the in the areas they they control, that came into existence after they took Sanaa, and that's I think when the civil society were basically shocked of what was going on all of this time, and we didn't realize this was uh, this was uh, uh, this was happening. So when they when they came into Sanaa, they immediately started to shut down all of all of the uh, media outlets, and for us that was one of the one of the big significant achievements after 2011 and the and the Arab Spring Revolution is that there was there was this environment of huge freedom of speech. You can uh, uh, the number of newspapers you know doubled. Uh, uh, you can uh, you can actively you can even go on TV and 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 and, and critique and criticize the government. Um, on people was seeing that on a day-to-day uh, basis, that changed after the Houthis um, uh, the Houthis came in. You started then to notice the number of newspapers decreasing, and then today you have seven or eight newspapers that are all run by the by the Houthis, and you would have you know the picture of their leader on each and each and and, uh, and every page, which looks like more a propaganda. It has nothing to do with um, with news. So effectively, I mean, if you are a journalist and you're trying to do an actual work as a journalist, then you'll be uh, you'll be targets. So civil society charities were shut down. Civil society activities were immediately uh, shut down. People were abducted from their homes, from from their place of place of work. I remember in February 2015 when 
we organized a it was just it was a vigil in the anniversary of the of the arab uh, the arab spring protests in in 2011 so it was february and before we were very very concerned about this new tense uh, environment so we 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 disc- we we communicated with the houthi leadership and we took guarantees from them that we're going to have this you know ceremony we're going to have this uh, protest but we need to an uh, insurances from you that not no one will be you know no one will be harmed um they gave us all of the assurances i think i can i can imagine then the moment we started they they surrounded their protest and then they started um chasing people out we then realized a number of people went missing and then when we started communicating again with the houthi leaders finally they gave us because there was one person that totally went missing that day and in the night they called us back and said okay go get your friend he is in uh one hospital uh it was called al ahli hospital in in uh, in sana'a and i was very concerned because i said so he was definitely beaten he's definitely injured that's why they took him to the hospital when he went to the hospital to our shock he was already dead they have beaten him from 5 pm i think until 9 pm so severely that he that he he died the moment he arrived to the uh to the hospital this is the environment that you live in under the houthis so you've been very very careful into what you can say what you can do and that's why basically a political process in this environment is just unimaginable you cannot have an active political parties where discussions and debates and and elections come into place where you have a, this kind of you know police state is running the is 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 is, is running the show and i know this is again hypothetical and quite ideal but how does one stop that police state would it require iran to stop funding them would it require more international pressure how does one make the houthis become less militant and more amenable to peace i think the first step is people need to take the houthis seriously so people need to stop to deal with it um you can criticize of course the uh the you can criticize anything like you you you, you you're entitled in your, when when there is a moral obligation you're you're you, you're supposed to do that so uh criticize the saudi led coalition or the yemeni government or the approach but you need to address what the houthis are doing very very seriously and seeing this is the harm they're doing on the civilians they're living that living um under uh under houthi rule it is not just an uh, i know for someone who's just sitting in the uk they they like to chant that it's oh let's stop this you know arms trade to uh to uh to saudi arabia and make this big campaign fine do that but when you address yemen you really have to address like don't try to pretend as like the other side is because you need to address it with much much seriousness so people can at least understand uh what is really going on and without i think a full understanding people will will not be able to understand what is it what does it mean to live under you know under uh, under houthis and in my neighborhood i know there was a a a charity that was run by a group of youth who used to feed 500 families that was shut down immediately after the houthis came in and uh the the thing is then you have all of those 500 families Uh, left without anyone to look uh, to look after them but worse even when they complained they started 
abducting some of them. So this is like, you cannot criticize you. you you're not even allowed to, to even show your, you know, this distress with the, with the, uh, 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 with the situation. So I think what people who need to help with Yemen needs to have an honest and a real discussion and serious discussion into, you know, onto the Houthis specifically, because a country that will be run by, by the Houthis is for me a scary, scary future for the country. And it's, it's a, it's a country that I think millions of people will constantly be leaving and uh, will not be, you know, will not be in a, in, a, in a better shape anytime soon. That's pretty dystopian from what's described. Um, I think just one final question before I let you go is, uh, would you recommend any books or any videos or popular media that we can access to better understand the humanitarian conflict in Yemen today? I think um, this is one of the, the, the main problems in Yemen, that it's, it's, it's not a topic that is actively discussed. And, and as, I, as I referred um, just, uh, just now, it's, it's referred only in the terms of, in the back of what is the US or the UK um, are doing, or like what is their relationship to Saudi Arabia and the, and the UAE. And then on the back of that, you'll slightly have discussion on, on Yemen. So there hasn't been, um, I would encourage people to talk to people from Yemen uh, to, 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 um, uh, to speak, uh, speak to them. Um, if, you, if, you know, um, you know, if you know, if you know Arabic, um, I would highly recommend, like you have a number of channels, I would highly recommend the Bilqis channel. Uh, they do have some of their publications that are translated, so that could uh, that can help. And maybe through your show, we can actively call them to translate more stuff because um, they're one of the few channels that try to do a form of good journalism in terms of this in this environment. And uh, the I say the the good journalists of Yemen who are able to join together and still keep keep things things uh, going. Um, you have Al Masdar online. Uh, that's also a very good. Um, a website that I'd uh, highly, uh, um, uh, highly recommend. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is, uh, the third thing is um, actively try to, try to talk to people who are from, uh, who are, who are, who are from the country. Um, they, can, um, they can give you uh, like a highlight of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the situation. And I would just say as much as possible, try to avoid for me, what was two things, propaganda media <laughs> and activism media. Uh, activism in general is, for me, is good, but that's not a place, activism by its definition has some also its biases. So you'll not be able just to extract uh, information um, or, or actual facts. Thank you so much for this interview. It's been incredibly useful and incredibly informative. It's been great having you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.